0: Hello and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is a cross-partisan nonprofit building a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Annika Kodistane, and at this week's roundtable, Olivia Becker, Rhea Menta, and I spoke with Michael Thorning, Associate Director for Governance at the Bipartisan Policy Center, which, as the name implies, actively fosters bipartisanship by combining the best ideas from both parties to promote health, security, and opportunity for all Americans. Michael spoke with us about BPC's strategy of strengthening institutions and fostering broader participation in democracy in order to diminish the most extreme manifestations of partisanship, and polarization. Michael helps us understand that bipartisanship is not an ideology unto itself, but rather it's a value and a norm. If people want stability in our laws and government, you don't want to be overthrown when your party is out of power. Government programs like Social Security endure because there were bipartisan compromises to start and sustain them, and the public has become dependent upon them. During these hyperpolarized times, speaking with Michael filled us with hope. Thanks for joining us. My name is Ineka Kodestane and I'm a sophomore um, from central New Jersey and I'm especially interested in journalism and how that's going to play into this year's election. Hi, my name is Olivia. I am a
1: rising senior from New York City and also NextGen's Director of Outreach and Engagement and I'm particularly passionate about bipartisanship and specific policies that we can create to have a legal precedent for it.
2: My name is Ria Mehta. I'm a rising freshman at Tufts University and I'm particularly interested in reading the hyperpolarization, polarization kind of as Olivia said and how we're able to foster civic dialogue you know in recent years with the cultural shifts that we've seen.
3: I'm Michael Thorning I'm associate director of governance at the Bipartisan Policy Center and a millennial so I'm I'm older but not that much older. I started working in politics in Washington DC finishing my last semester of college when I started working in the Senate uh, for a senator from my home state of New Mexico and then I worked in the Senate three more years after that and came to the Bipartisan Policy Center in in 2014 uh, to work on domestic democracy reform.
1: And just a follow up on that, can you tell us a little bit more about what you've been doing at the Bipartisan Policy Center?
3: Sure, when I started at BPC in 2014, I was working on our democracy project. We worked on a range of issues from election administration. So that's sort of everything that happens to actually make voting possible whether it starts with voter registration, you know, absentee voting, voting by mail, all the way up to how will voting works on election day and during early voting and polling places, counting ballots and things that happen after the election. And then really the rest of our work has been focused on kind of big picture, political and institutional reform. So, reforming other things in our election system like redistricting and campaign finance. We've spent a lot of time and I continue, most of my work today is about how to make Congress more responsive and more representative and done some work on community and national service. And along the way, I've got to do some really interesting programs that are a part of that. One of the ones I always talk about is our American Congressional Exchange. It's a program we started, Never been anything like this before. We have bipartisan pairs of members of Congress visit each other in their home districts for a weekend or a couple of days. There wasn't really a way for members to do this before, and we think building that kind of relationship is key uh, to people working together in Congress. And probably more recently, I think something you know listeners might be interested in, we've been working with this kind of behind-the-scenes committee in the House. It's called the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress, It's flown under the radar, but they are really poised to make once in a generation changes to how Congress works, you know, from the tech they use, the kind of social media, down to how much staff get paid and whether members, you know, should live in Washington and should they get a stipend for that, all the way up to rules and procedure and everyday things. So it's a really broad range of topics that I work on. It's a little different from maybe typical public policy or political work and that you know we're really looking at institutions it's not healthcare or education it's the nuts and bolts of our democracy
2: how has like your work related to kind of fostering civic dialogue now in a more tense time in a time where people are more polarized and kind of see things from one side or the other um, you know, regarding the protests and pandemic?
3: No doubt we are, I would say, going against the grain of where the country is moving right now. You know, we are living through an era of polarization. People are more and more attracted to extreme views in politics. Extreme views have become the way people distinguish themselves from one another, and so, and we also have been living through a period of extreme partisanship, and those kind of are two different things, but they start to play off of one another, so you have both a desire to distinguish yourself from others by kind of attaching to extreme views, so you could kind of think of the Republican Party moving right and Democrats moving left, but the partisanship part of that, right, is, is an identification with that party, so it becomes sort of an us versus them mentality, and instinctually, you know, you're much more likely to just sort of agree with Democrats or agree with the Democratic Party because you identify or align with them most of the time. Those are huge and really deep-rooted trends that are happening. I mean, these go back 50 and 60 years ago and, and more. We know from political sciences that's driven by things like income and wealth inequality, division of the parties in terms of racial politics. People sort of view Democrats as being the party of minorities and Republicans being the party of sort of white Americans. Campaign finance probably plays a little bit of a role in, in as a catalyst, you know, in, in driving those, but um, really deep trends that encouraging people to kind of move in opposite directions. So, you know, what we do at BPC, you know, one, I think we believe that a way for the country to continue to govern through that is to build strong institutions that can you know, work through those differences. You know, that's why in, in Congress, we're supposed to have debate and people are supposed to negotiate. You know, our, our elections are, are the foundation of how we decide who is going to represent us. And the parties increasingly believe that the other side is stacking the deck and choosing the rules to work against them. And certainly there are some cases where that's true. This country and every country with free and fair elections has a history of people doing things that are outright illegal or just bending the rules to try to get an advantage in elections. You know, what we're doing at BPC is, is trying to build strong institutions and build better election system um, that can be more representative. I think we believe that the ultimate goal is that the more people who participate in our democracy will have a moderating effect on some of these trends. So we're trying to make those systems work better.
1: I think for for us, Gen Z, in the media, we hear this term a lot, but are not totally sure of what it means or the implications. So what are some metrics you use to actually track partisanship? And over time, how has it changed tangibly?
3: Uh, So actually, at BPC, we don't do any research that tracks partisanship. I, I think there are some worthy attempts at it. To be honest, it's a really difficult thing to do. And we're talking about partisanship uh, of two different things. So there's partisanship, I guess, in in the general public, and there's partisanship among elites. There are different ways to measure those things. You know, in in terms of the public, there are some really straightforward ways that uh, have to do with surveys and polling, people who abstain from certain votes, you know, when they they go to the polls, right? How much drop-off is there uh, in terms of who people are voting for? You know, for instance, 2016, you know, how many people just skipped over presidential race they weren't satisfied with either of the parties and um you know some of the other ways for elites right particularly congress people tend to look at vote records and there are a lot of reasons why that can be a little bit misleading but i think It's hard to say, I think, to look at the whole of the evidence and not see that both the general public and elites, I think, are more and more identified with their party and their party's views and do not align with any or in very few ways with the other party and any of their views. In the past, we have had people whose views overlapped. At this point, basically, everyone who is a Democrat is a liberal or on the left in terms of politics, and everyone who is a conservative is um, on the right. Or, sorry, everyone who is a Republican is a conservative or, or on the right. And there isn't um, a lot of overlap there.
0: I think a lot of people associate bipartisanship with compromise. And I think compromise is something we haven't seen a lot of in the past few years. But we've sort of seen it in the face of coronavirus, where people are saying, compromise is something we need more than ever. So is there a way to ensure that like Congress will be able to compromise or like the parties will be able to compromise without having like a global pandemic forcing that to happen?
3: I guess I would say, unfortunately, The fact, as you point out, that coronavirus is the exception rather than the rule, I think tells you a lot about where our politics are now. I mean, you'd be hard-pressed either for this Congress or the one before it or the one before that to name a really major piece of legislation or national policy that was put in place. Parties agreed. I mean, even when both Republicans controlled the White House, the House and Senate, it was difficult for Congress and the president to agree on policy. So, when it comes to negotiation, I think in a crisis, people are more willing to put aside some political differences because what happens is they're comparing the consequences of not acting with potential electoral consequences. You know, I, I don't think we should ever beat around the bush about the fact that it's great if our elected leaders make policy that is in the best interest of the country, but I think we also have to accept that because we live in a democracy, they are going to make decisions that they think are going to help them in an election scenario. So I think that's why you saw quick agreement on coronavirus and why we've quickly seen, I think, disagreement on how to move forward in terms of policing and racial justice. You know, we have a health crisis that's also an economic crisis, and the stakes for that are very high. I think the warnings were clear from experts, both on the health side and the economic side, that if Congress did not act and the president did not act, I mean, we were talking dire outcomes for the country, Great Depression-level economic outcomes. And we, we were already facing a global pandemic. Um, people were talking about hundreds of thousands of deaths and and not just 100 or 200. I mean, much higher than what we've seen so far. And fortunately, that's not come to pass. So. Those are pretty high stakes versus if we compromise with the Democrats on this immigration bill, we're gonna lose some people in the next election. And so I think what that kind of gets at is one of these trends that's happening. There's a great political scientist now at Princeton, Francis Lee, who, who has a book about insecure majorities. And what she's talking about is how we're living through a period in history where the political parties are very competitive, more competitive than they have been in the last hundred years, maybe in the last 150 years. And so the incentive uh, there is to maximize your um, electoral outcomes. And the way you do that, if you're in power in the House or Senate, you're in the majority, you wanna control what the House or Senate does to please your voters. And the other part of that is not do anything that is going to help the other side please their voters and get support, or maybe even pull supporters over to their side. And so, you know, there, there aren't a lot of incentives when you think about that situation to, to work with the other side. If you give them something, the concern is that that's gonna, you know, give them this one thing that they need that suddenly, you know, they're gonna flip the chamber and or will we'll lose the White House. And I, I think that theory really well explains what we're living through and why our elected leaders don't want to cooperate.
2: Um, sentiment. Um, I'm sure like it can be like hard to navigate like perceptions and labels and and even like within the processes and research that you do. So like mm-hmm. how has like bipartisan policy center? How have you dealt with like navigating those kinds of perceptions? And how have you as like an organization kind of? thought to like make sure it's inclusive of like liberal and conservative views within the research
0: that you do.
3: Most helpful thing that we do is that we aren't afraid to engage with people who have strong viewpoints. One of the examples that's coming to mind for me is we had a, a health project where um, George Miller, who is a former representative, who was pretty liberal, and Rick Santorum, who was pretty conservative, worked together uh, on a task force that we had and there are plenty of examples i think we have where we're not we're not trying to game the system you know we recognize that there are a wide range of views in both parties right now but that there's a huge gap between the two parties and so you know we are not afraid of strong partisan views we'd like to point out to people you know we're we're not the nonpartisan policy center. We are the bipartisan policy center. We want Republicans and Democrats to come to the table and negotiate over things. And sometimes what happens in a negotiation is you realize you are, you are not going to agree on a certain topic. And sometimes you know, things do get left out of those compromises that one side or the other would like to do something about. Or sometimes both sides would like to address, but they can't agree on how to do that. So I think really being true about bringing strong voices to the table is a part of that. I think the second part in terms of staff and people who work there were extremely sensitive to this. And I'm lucky to work with great colleagues who, you know, at the end of the day, do respect the views of, you know, people who don't share their political views. And, you know, my colleagues are really savvy people who understand that our work is only going to be strong if we're not, you know, trying to load the deck for one side or the other. But at the same time, you know, you, you, there's sometimes more art than science to it. You know, that is really, I think when, you know, these strong partisan voices can make sure that we are representing the views of both parties equally, or at least, you know, taking them into account.
1: You know, a policy center is only successful as their implementation of the policies, you know, you're thinking through and creating. But as you mentioned, people are migrating to the extremes now. So how do you go about convincing or persuading these more partisan politicians that your policy ideas are in their best interest or in the best interest of the nation if it's obviously kind of going to contradict their voter base?
3: We try to be very forward and smart about our arguments that we make to these people, number one. As it goes in Washington, there will always be some people you are not going to convince. And while we would like to convince everyone, we want to convince a healthy majority. And, you know, sometimes that does mean that there aren't people whose vote you're gonna get on a bill or who aren't gonna to wanna to participate in a program you're doing or something else. But, you know, I think if we've done our job well on the policy development side, the compromise that's been struck should be enough to pull in people from both sides. You know, you, you wanna hitch um, your cart to the train that's moving. And so, you know, I think we are really strategic and savvy about understanding which policies are moving in Washington. And you're probably rarely, if ever, going to see a bill that is, you know, the legislative translation of a bipartisan policy center report. Our job is to try to get parts of what we've done into the things that are, are moving in Washington. So I think of a big accomplishment in the last Congress was the passage of something called the Cures Act, which was a healthcare bill about medical research basically um, you know this was part of this was the the moonshot effort of uh, trying to cure cancer but other other you know, long term health issues um, you know BPC and I, I'm not one of our health experts so it's hard for me to speak specifically to what uh, the things are that we got into the bill, but when something like that's happening, you you take parts of what you've got and what you've done, and you work with people to help them realize how it can improve what they're trying to do.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's just fascinating in relation to your work, because you have all these facets of what you do, whether it's governance or immigration and health, and how you prioritize it at different times based on what's more en vogue, because that correlates to your success.
2: The very concept of Facts and factual information versus like the idea of like fake news. I how you know how in European has that kind of shifted the the very definition of what partisanship is right because To some people partisanship is standing behind the scientific community and to some it's not. How -hmm. has that kind of informed your policy advising
3: If we're being honest, historically, I think we've always had maybe not at all times, but historically we've definitely had periods where there was disagreement between the parties about what was fact and what was science and what was fiction. And we've certainly had um, factions within our political system who um, were uninterested in science and uh, didn't trust it. So it's not a new challenge necessarily. I think maybe we're just more exposed to it now, probably just because people are you know, much more aware day to day or or inundated day to day with information about politics and what's happening in Washington. I I generally think, for the most part, um, there are loud voices in Washington who, uh, you know, are uninterested in fact or science. The majority of people who come here are. I'll also say if anyone who's ever been involved in a negotiation in Washington knows that both sides come to the table with their own facts that support their positions. Um, And that's not to say that people are trying to tilt them or, you know, that they're being dishonest about what they say. At the end of the day, I think the differences come down to a philosophical gap in how different sides think problems should be addressed. And sometimes that spreads over into whether or not a problem actually exists. But, um, you know, I, I think you've seen a just in this Congress alone, a huge sea change for Republicans in terms of how they're talking about climate change and whether it exists and, and what they might do about it. You know, I I think a period of really long opposition to what scientific fact says, um, I think often will eventually crumble after some period of time. Changing people's minds takes time, and probably I think for um, you know people who've been working on climate change for a long time, I, I think um they have somewhat of a victory now and um potentially uh, things will keep moving in that direction
0: i think something that we've all been noticing for the past few years is that people's opinions have become more extreme and they're either going more left or more right so um just to ask like a very simple question like how is that going to affect your job at the bipartisan policy center like how is that going to affect how you guys write policies and how you plan on moving
3: forward? No doubt it will make our jobs harder, but at the same time, I think for us, I think that makes our role and the opportunities for us all that more important in Washington. And I'll go back to um, concept I was talking about earlier about these insecure majorities. If trends continue the way they are uh, in the near future, be very rare that you have a party who controls the house uh the senate and and the white house there's a, a lot of opportunity for those to be in different control and and the senate has some super majoritarian rules that make it hard to pass policy you know without you know getting some support likely from the other side in the last 25 years maybe 30 years only one party has ever had enough votes on its own to get over the filibuster in the senate and that was one time uh, for a very short period of time. So um, for us, as as people are moving away, eventually you have issues that will fester for so long that they must be addressed. And that is what BPC is, is going to be there um, to help them work through. And no doubt it, it will be difficult, but we believe in the importance of getting input from both parties and getting buy-in from both parties for permanency of, of policy change. You know, bipartisanship is not a political ideology itself, but it is a, a value and it is a norm that um, if people want stability in you know, the policies and laws of our government, you don't want those things to be suddenly overturned the next time your party is out of power. You know, part of the reason... Big programs like, you know, Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, lots of other programs we have have continued for decades, despite criticism of of different programs from the parties. Those things endure because there were bipartisan compromises to make them happen. There were further bipartisan compromises along the way in the time since they were established to keep those programs going. And they've become things that Americans rely on. And so parties are committed to continuing them.
2: That's all for today with NextGen Politics. Special thanks to our editor Clara Medina, our producer Sanda Balaban, and to Jeremiah Hunt for our opening and closing music. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org for links related to what we've discussed and to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic minded friends or to your friends you'd like to become more civic minded. This is Maggie Yu for NextGen Politics.